Well, we are continuing in our going through the, uh, the book of Philippians, Paul's letters to the church of Philippi. We began this at the beginning of the summer with this principle that, the, that we want to have joy for the journey. Uh, we are in a journey through this life, much like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. We are journeying from the city of destruction uh, to the celestial city. And on the way, we have victories and we have failures, but we are commanded by God to go on this journey with a certain level of joy. There ought to be a joy in the heart of all Christians because of what God has done. And we know that every step along the way has been ordained by God himself, a God who loves us. And we find ourselves with Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 this morning. And just to kind of give you a little bit of a background, the Apostle Paul, of course, is in Rome. He is chained to a prison guard under house arrest. This is his fourth year of imprisonment. And he is writing to his probably his favorite church, the church at Philippi. And he is trying to address a few issues that are going on. But also just he just keeps stoking that that desire that they have joy in the midst of their trials and tribulations. And we have this wonderful letter as a challenge for us as well. He has just mentioned in the passage prior to this uh, how God allows his children to suffer and that that's actually a principle of his grace. He said here, for it has been granted you, that idea granted comes from the same word we get grace. So you could say he's been, he has graced you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Those who've been trained by suffering, who've, been, who've grown in their holiness as a result of suffering can give an amen. Even though you're Presbyterian, you could give an amen uh, to that particular passage, knowing that that's true. But it's not a guarantee, folks. It is not a guarantee that your suffering will make you more loving, more holy, uh, more, more pious in many ways. Sometimes it has the opposite effect. If you do not trust in the Lord and you are not walking a life of faith, suffering can make you embittered, resentful, angry, selfish, and morose. And you could be a burden to the church instead of a blessing to the church. So what we're, Paul's going to look at today and what we're going to look at today is this idea that we are to be sanctified. We are to grow in holiness in our Christian journey to the next land. Uh, and we're to be doing that without complaint, without murmuring and, and on our knees before the Lord in joy. Let us go to the Lord in prayer and let's unpack this amazing passage before us. Father, we do turn to you in faith. And it is our great desire that we grow in holiness through sanctification without complaint. And as a result, we will see the, the, the wonderful usefulness of the difficulties, the trials, the tribulations, and the suffering in our life. What a shame it would be for us to suffer, to go through difficulties, trials, temptations, difficulties, and become selfish, greedy, angry, bitter. Lord, we want those wonderful truths to come through in our lives, God, that for those who you love, you discipline. I pray, God, that we would be disciplined to learn from this passage this morning so that we can tirelessly pursue holiness by understanding the wonderful principles of Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 18. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you will turn again to Philippians 2, 12 through 18, I'm going to read the passage in entirety and then we'll We'll show you the three different uh, aspects that we're going to be looking at this morning. 
Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, God says, and the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. You might find your home group's helps insert of assistance to you as you follow along with us in the sermon. That is designed to give you the sermon outline. Not much room for notes today, uh, but it gives you the sermon outline. And it also gives you some questions that you uh, that we will use in our various home groups to kind of follow back up on the on the sermon, or as a as the uh, the Puritans were fond of saying, from a spiritual standpoint, to chew the cud over and over again until you get all of the nutrition from uh, the Word of God that God intends for you to have. But it's also useful if you were to use this as a daily devotion, or uh, also in family devotions as well. So you will see that there are basically three aspects of a mature Christian: one who is pursuing holiness. Uh, the way the Apostle Paul expects us to in the power of the Holy Spirit for this passage. You can see a sanctified life in verses 12 through 13, a shining light in verse 14 through 15, and a sacrificial libation in uh, verses 16 through 18. So the first of all here, uh, in, in terms of uh, the aspects of a mature Christian and holy living, we see a sanctified life here. Paul starts off with therefore, and of course what he's doing, he's taking back to the previous passage of Christ's great humiliation and exaltation. Where he said that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If that's true, and it is folks, what is the expectation God has for your behavior. If it is true that he is high and exalted on the throne, Isaiah, what is it that you are to do in regards to your life? And this is what he, the Apostle Paul is now explaining here. There is obvious implications that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that means we are to follow what he says to do. Paul also says here, my beloved here, this is important to understand because this passage has been confused sometimes. Uh, with people saying, believing that Paul might be teaching that you work for your salvation. That's not what the passage says, and we'll explain that. But he says here, my beloved, like all of all, uh, Paul's writings, this is written to Christians. And people get so confused on that, but it's not complicated. He is writing to the church of Philippi. Beloved, when he refers to beloved, he only uses that in regards to brothers and sisters in Christ. They're part of the same family adopted by the king of kings. And the Lord of Lords. So this is not, in a sense, a passage for a non-Christian. The expectations of obedience cannot be achieved by a non-Christian. They don't have a Holy Spirit. They don't have a love for God. They don't have the power of God within them to be able to obey. It should confront them of their sin. And it would be hoped that amongst some of you, amongst some of those watching online, people might become a Christian because they're confronted with this. But you just need to know this is for the Christian. 
And because so the word, none of these words apply to unbelievers. We just got to get our category straight. Otherwise, we get confused. But Paul is basically saying here, he goes back earlier in verse 27 of chapter, uh, chapter 1. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come or see or you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and, and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he's continuing on this theme. And what does it look like for you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That should be our great ambition. That should be our great goal in life. But the Philippian church, as wonderful as that church was, it had some problems. And there seems to be a couple of things that, that are kind of uh, brought out in this particular passage and others. Two maybe challenges that they were dealing with was an uh, external persecution, which happened at the Apostle Paul and Silas. They were thrown in jail right at the outset of planning this church. And also some internal disunity. The, the devil is always trying to divide He's trying to get in there and split the church, break it up, cause factions within the church. And you saw this with a, in a great example in the Corinthian church. But it may also be a, a temptation here in the Philippian church. So he says, as you've always obeyed, so now obey. This idea of obey is hupo-aku, uh, which actually is a compound word, a preposition of hupo with the word aku, which where we get our word uh, acoustics from. So it's, it's, it literally means to be place yourself under what has been heard. And that's what the Christian does. We read the Bible not looking for loopholes, <laughs> not looking to justify our actions, but we have a desire to humbly go under the written word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that we can do what it says here. Not only my presence, but also my absence. Of course, Paul has been away from the Philippian church for some years now. He wants them to work worthy, but he is pleased that he doesn't have to be there. He doesn't have to be the lifeguard looking over them all the time while they're swimming. He doesn't have to be the authoritarian over them. They are obeying because they love God. They are obeying because they love the gospel. This is a principle we all want to embrace and that we want to, to uh, uh, emulate as did the, the Corinthian church. It's interesting. Back in my chaplain days... Uh, a sergeant would be given a briefing or something like that, and he would just, if you've ever been in the military, you, you know that cuss words are like, I mean, like, um, to say they're common really would be to understate that, but people love to cuss in the military. And they, the sergeant, a sergeant would fly out with some kind of cuss word, then look at me, sorry chaps, and then he'd fly out with another cuss word, sorry chaps, fly out with another cuss word, sorry chaps, can you relate? There's no, there's no sorry chaps the Philippian church, they're doing the right thing, even though the Apostle Paul is not standing right there. It's this principle of being self-governed, self-governed. And this is something that comes through the new covenant. As we look at the new covenant, we, we, we realize that God has put a love for him inside of our own hearts. So we want to obey him because we love him. Y'all, that is earth shaking. The tablets of stones failed. The tablets, the, the, the law of God written on human hearts succeeds where the tablets of stones did not. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 30, uh, 25, the old covenant. I will sprinkle clean water of them. We all think about this because we think about how bad our sin is and how dirty we are. But this is the promise for every Christian. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness. 
And from your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put with you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Wow. What an advantage it is to be a Christian. What a blessing it is to have God live within you and to put the love of God inside of us. And that's part of what we're going to look at today in Philippians. You know, it's interesting with all this movement, this uh, defund the police movement that you've seen. And it just seems like every day we're seeing a video of this, these mass shoplifting, carjackings, riots and that kind of thing. Especially in these cities that defunded the police. I, I'm pretty confident. I don't know all of you, but I'm pretty confident if all of a sudden we had no policemen or women in Anderson County or the city of Anderson, y'all are not going to go out and loot the Krispy Kreme. You're not going to go stealing cars or anything. You're going to do the right thing because it doesn't matter so much whether there's a policeman watching you. You know that God the Father is watching you. And you know that an obedience to him is an expression of love to him. Well, most of the world doesn't have that. They got to have the cops. They got to have the cops to keep them in line, but not, not for those who have the new covenant, that are part of the new covenant. We, and then he gets to this great principle that we're going to need to unpack a little bit and explain. Work out your own salvation. This idea of working out means that you have to, there's a constant energy and an effort that, that goes into completing this task. You cannot be a lazy Christian and behold the face of God. You have got to work constantly to maintain this relationship that you have with them. Not that you can lose your salvation, but you can lose the joy of your salvation. You can lose the assurance of salvation if you're a slack, lazy Christian. You've got to work this out. Now, obviously, and this is where you, we want to start off with what this is not teaching. This is not teaching you have to work for your salvation. That's what all the other religions teach. If you really want to embrace that, become a, become a Muslim. You know, uh, become uh, become anonymous, become somebody else. If you want to be saved by your good works uh, or some kind of ceremony, Christianity is not for you. This church is certainly not for you. We are saved by grace. The Apostle Paul explains this in Ephesians chapter two, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. But. Paul keeps writing in verse 10. He says this, for we are because of that condition of grace, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. What will help you understand this is we're saved by grace, but we're saved in a sense to good works that God has prepared before him. That's what Paul says on those verses. You got both there. You know, once you're saved you are possessed by the Holy Spirit. You are worshiping the Lord. You devote the rest of your life in pleasing him, just like a child wants to please their father. So it would help you to see the three different types of salvation that are explained in Scripture. There's a past, a present, and a future. There's a justification in the past, sanctification in the present, and glorification in the future. As one commentator says this, in justification, believers are saved immediately from the penalty of sin. Okay. In sanctification, they are saved progressively from the power and practice of sin. And that's what we're talking about today. In glorification, they're saved ultimately from the presence of sin. Whew. With all those descriptions of 
the new Eden in heaven and streets of gold and all that kind of stuff. Actually, I think the thing that we're going to we long for the most is just to be away from the presence of sin. No temptation, no sin. No CNN, <laughs> you know, no weeds in your garden, no worms in your dog. You know, it's just nothing, none of that away from that. But the focus here today is this this sanctification, this continued growth of holiness, growth of holiness. Paul starts off the Philippian letter with this point in uh, Philippians chapter one, uh, verse six. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Sanctification is basically holiness on a practical level, holiness on a practical level. Now, in our church, we think Sunday morning is for Christians. Uh, we preach, we teach, all the things that we do here are, are basically for church Christians to grow more and more in, in, in maturity so that you can go do the work of ministry out into the world during the week. We don't think this is primarily a revival service. We don't gear all of our sermons towards you need to get saved, you need to get saved, you need to get saved, even though if you're not saved, you do need to get saved. All right. What our desire is to emphasize this principle of salvation, of, of sanctification. So our folks, this is kind of old hat, but not everybody or are, are, have, have been here before. But the, here's the thing is it takes work. It takes work. Matter of fact, it takes more work than it, than in anything else that you're going to work on. And everything else you do is associated with this principle of sanctification. James chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It takes work to resist the devil. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Discipline, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Apostle Paul saying we need to train our bodies in not being uh, fulfilling its desires all the time. We're, in a sense, we're at war with our own bodies. 1 Timothy 4, train yourself for godliness, Galatians chapter 6, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Why, do, why would we grow weary? Because we work hard at holiness. We work hard at holiness. So basically, ultimately, in this life, our salvation will result in sanctification. Sinclair Ferguson says this, kind of sums up this point here. We are not to uh, work for it or work it up, but work it out. That is, make sure that its influence and implications permeate the whole of our lives. We got a lot of students here this morning. And I want to be careful of this because I understand there's people with learning disabilities, there's different skills, there's different levels of intelligence, I think, but... but it is my hope that your grades will reflect your relationship with Jesus Christ. That there is a discipline that you put into your life. So you go to class. <laughs> you study. You don't cram. You do the proper uh, citations. You don't go to chat BTC or whatever it is and write your, uh, write your or Tic Tac for that matter. Uh, uh, you don't get any of that stuff off the Internet and then slap your name on it and throw it to you. By the way, we have no ways of knowing whether you did that or not. That you faithfully, faithfully, faithfully attend classes, study hard, turn in your papers in time. And what will end up happening is you'll make an A and you'll enjoy school a whole lot more than just being one of these spineless, mediocre, uh, you know, just kind of wink at school every now and then. Get the most out of it. People at work. 
the most out of it. All those things apply to this idea of salvation. Why? Because God is watching. And God will have you give an account of the way you spend this life. That's a principle of Holy Scripture. But even if it wasn't a principle of Holy Scripture, don't you know that intuitively? Don't you sense that there's an accountability there, that, that, that you need to give an account of what you've done? Of course, there's plenty of parables for that principle as well. So Paul goes on to say we are to do this with fear and trembling. Now, people hate this verse. Why would I want to worship a God that I've got to fear? Why would, why would you ever worship a God you don't fear? There is, a, there is an aspect here. He is like the creator God. He did speak all of this into existence. He is the great judge of all of mankind. There should be a certain level of fear and trembling, but it's associated with the love that we would have for a really good parent. The same kind of authority uh, that is present in a good parent would be a parent here with this idea of God. But it's a biblical principle. Even if you, you know what? If you don't like it, if it's in the Bible, I don't care. You're wrong. It's a biblical principle. It's all throughout Holy Scripture. Psalm chapter 2, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Isn't that interesting? This is what Paul's going on with the Philippians too. Serve him with fear and rejoice in trembling. Rejoice in trembling? If you're a Christian, you actually get that. Isaiah 66, to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, who trembles at my word. Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Also, of course, Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 9. Dennis Johnson says this, conscious of our own frailty and fickleness, we rightly fear to stray from the side of our great shepherd. John MacArthur says this, such fear involves self-distrust, a sensitive conscience, and being on guard against temptation. One commentator says this, this phrase carries the idea of Christian doing his utmost to fulfill his duty because he knows whom that, who he owes that duty to. Steve Lawson reminds us, note that this is fear and trembling is recorded in a letter that continually emphasizes joy in the Christian life. The gladness that believers experience in the Lord grows out of a, a fertile soil of fearing God with reverential awe. The Philippians were to be sincerely earnest in their Christian life. There was to be nothing casual in their approach to pursuing holiness. Some of y'all are here trying to think, you know, do we want to go to this church? It, it, our church is serious about Jesus Christ. If you're an old-souled person in a new world, you have found your church <laughs> We are serious about Jesus Christ, and yet we're also serious with joy. You know, there are Christians who are so serious about uh, uh, Christian life, and it's like they're all undertakers or something like that. There's just this moroseness, you know, but one of our mottos is we're putting the fun back into fundamentalism. You know, we, we are serious about Jesus Christ, and we are having a ball being serious of Jesus Christ. You think sin's fun? fun? Try obedience. That's even better. You know, we are very serious about things of Jesus Christ. And we do that because we understand there's a reverence and awe that is due Jesus Christ. Of course, uh, you have to have an illustration from C.S. Lewis, right? I think it's been a week. <clears throat> and, it, and you think I couldn't, I, I kept 
going through my mind, Aslan, right? Aslan is the king of Narnia, the great lion king of Narnia. The Pevensey children are transported into Narnia. They've not yet met Aslan. They've heard about him, and he's terrifying. They're having this conversation with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And I'm not going to attempt Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's accents. Uh, but Susan says this, and when hearing about Aslan, is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver responds, is there anyone who could appear before Aslan without their knees knocking? They're either braver than most or else just silly. Lucy says, then he isn't safe. Mr. Beaver opines, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is not safe, but he is good. And his beloved, his children, understand that principle. Sinclair Ferguson says, There should always be a sense of awe in the life of the believer, a sense of living where we are always visible, always understood through and through, and amazingly Always loved by the Holy One. Isn't that amazing? We're, we, I tend to be kind of an open person, but a lot of us are very closed, and I'm closed about some things, because we're afraid to let you in. If you really knew what I was like, I don't think you would like me very much, right? This kind of thing. I, I, I was saying that as a statement, not necessarily personally. Well, that's true personally, too. God sees Everything. There's never been a sin that he, you have committed that he has not seen. That he did, he's not, there's never been a sin that you are going to commit that he has not already seen. And he adores you. He adores you. He adores you. That's a God worthy of worship, isn't it? For it is God who works in you. Now here's the other side of the coin here. You are to work, but it's God who's work, is working in you. Gordon Fee says this, the verb work as elsewhere does not so much mean that God is going to do it for them, but that God supplies the necessary empowering. Their obedience is ultimately something God affects in and among them. God is the one who's working disobedience for you. Now, that doesn't mean when you go and disobey that you can blame God. You're accountable for that. And yet what he does, and you see this when you're confessing your sin, you realize I've learned to hate my sin. That came from somewhere outside of myself, right? God is the one that aids you in this life for obedience and for sanctification, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. D.A. Carson says the works in us are at the level of our wills and at the level of our doing. God works in us, not merely with us. So you got two points here. You got will, that's the desire to obey. Dennis Johnson says, we, we need the Spirit to rescue us from our innate self-centeredness and then to work. And that's the ability to obey. Will and work. Will and work. He is always working on those two things. He's working on your desire and he's working on your ability. Augustine wrote, our deeds are our own because of the free will producing them. And they are also God's because of his grace causing our free will to produce them. And we are uh, and, and he says elsewhere, God makes us do what he pleases by making us desire what we might not desire. It's a great illustration of this in the Exodus, right? In the, in the Red Sea. 
beautiful illustration here, uh, Exodus chapter 14, when Pharaoh's army was chasing Israel uh, and, uh, and uh, Moses knew that God was going to carry out what he said he would carry out. Moses stood up and says, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you've seen today, you will never see, <coughs> see them again. And the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then a few verse later, the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel, go forward, you know, go get in the sea. Well, not on the, on the sand in the sea. With the whale going like in that movie where the whale comes on the side. Of, never mind. Y'all didn't see the movie. Y'all probably like reading. <clears throat> And, uh, and then, uh, so then lift up your staff and cry out and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. So how was that accomplished? God did it. How did he do it? By getting them to go through the sea. It's that same with absolutely everything you deal with. Every temptation, every victory, everything you deal with. God is going to do it in you, but you got to do it. If you just think, oh, he's just going to mystically do all this kind of stuff, go, go join a Quaker church. There's always some kind of mystical movement there. They kind of put everything on God. But if you think you do it all, go join a pietistic church where you just kind of can't really rely on God to give it all that kind of stuff. There's a balance in all these things. And I think, frankly, that balance shifts a little bit. Sometimes, yeah, as you all know, it's a whole lot more God than me because I am weak in this area. There's other times when... You just don't really sense God, but you know you got to do the right thing. For one thing, after a while, you just learn sin just isn't worth it. It's painful. It's painful. Charles Wesley captured this. One of the wonderful contributions of the Methodist. <laughs> Love divine, all loves excelling. The, se the second stanza says this. Breathe, oh, breathe thy loving spirit into every troubled breast, God. Let us all in thee inherit. Let us find promised rest. Take away our love of sinning. Alpha and omega be. End of faith as it's beginning. Set our hearts at liberty. Take away our love of sinning. Whew, what a good prayer that is, huh? Take away our love of sinning. His love for us is meant for his good pleasure. He enjoys our obedience. Hey, that, now, you know, I don't get all the cosmic way this thing works out. But you have an ability to make God happy. I mean, God's ultimately happy in a lot of ways. But there's, there's some mystical thing there. When you do the right thing and you glorify him, it's, it brings pleasure to God. That's wild, isn't it? But if you're a parent, you get that, right? It gives you pleasure when your children do the right thing. Well, I think God feels some of that same pleasure himself. And, and the principle is this. Sometimes we tend to look at obedience and we think, okay, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. If that's the only perspective, you're going to fail. You've got to replace that desire for the sin with a desire for God. Thomas Chalmers, one of the founders of the Free Church of Scotland, uh, called it in one of his probably best sermons ever, the expulsive power of a new affection. You used to have affection for satisfying the flesh, for pleasing the world. When you become a Christian, you need to shift that affection to pleasing Christ. And what you'll find over time is the power of the affection for Christ becomes more powerful than the affection that you had for the world. It's a replacement. It's not just a you shall not. It's a replacement 
with a new affection. Now we see here a shining light in verse 14 through 15 here. Do all things without grumbling and questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you appear as lights of the world. So he's basically taking the principle of sanctification, this working out of holiness and fear and trembling, and he actually comes up with a specific example of this, the use of our tongues. And he's addressing attitude here. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. The, this is evidently might have been one of the issues in the Philippian church. It's an issue in every church. Uh, because And it's a problem because it leads to disunity. It leads to faction. It leads to slander. It leads to gossip. Many, many pastors have have been run out of their churches because of this, this principle here. I love this, the idea of grumbling. Uh, it's, a, it's an onomatopoeic word. It, it, it sounds like it means in the Greek. Uh, now, Makaria could tell us this. In the Greek, that word is gagusmon. Gagus, that sounds like an orc warrior, you know, gagusmon. It might help you not to grumble if you could hear it in the Greek. I'm going to gagusmon for a bit right now. It's a murmuring, it's a quiet, it's, it's basically breathing disfavor and anger, okay? Uh, this is what you do when you hit traffic on Interstate 85. You gagusman. You know, you, 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 there's a big traffic jam. You know it's because there's some idiot up front, and when you finally get up there, you want to look in the car to see if that person is as stupid as you thought they were, right? You're gagusmaning that man, right? Well, ultimately, you're gagusmaning God. God puts you in that traffic jam, maybe to teach you a little bit of lessons. And I'm an expert on obedience in this area, as my wife will tell you. And questioning is basically, uh, uh, basically, it's petty dialogue that calls everything into question. Are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure all this kind? When that's done in the church, it ends up being a real problem. Now, it's not that you can't come to us with improvements. There's plenty of things we need to improve in this church. So you're welcome to come and say, we suggest you do this. We suggest you stop doing that. That's fine. But it's the, well, this old church, that air conditioner is set to stun. I almost died there today. You know, this kind of thing. <laughs> There's a reason for that. It keeps the men awake. And the women of our church have learned, I would rather have a holy husband than to be comfortable, so I'm going to bring a shawl. That's kind of the way we operate, you know. Men will fall asleep if it gets too, if it gets too warm. So don't gagusman about the air conditioning in this, in this church. And, and matter of fact, uh, you start thinking, okay, what things does God want me to not complain about? What things? Well, guess what? All things. All things. What does all things include? All things. All things. All right? And there's no profit in this, right? There's no profit when you get a circle of angry old white men talking about how bad Washington, D.C. is. I mean, you know, we do that every now and then. We, you know, you want to know the times and stuff like that. But after a while, we all kind of get this burden and you think there's just no profit in this. All I've done is discouraged everybody who's hearing me. Why don't we talk about what the Lord is doing? Our hope is not in Washington, D.C., anything, which, which is a good thing. Uh, so basically, he's going to an example here back in the wilderness wanderings. We keep going back to that. But during Exodus, uh, when they grumbled against Moses and they also grumbled against God. Exodus chapter 16, God says, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. And Paul warns the reason why God smote 
Here's an Old Testament word. Smote the Israelites because of that grumbling was an example to us. He tells the Corinthians, we must not put Christ to the test. That's what your grumbling is doing. Put Christ to the as some did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by this destroyer. Now, these things happen to them as an example, but they are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. Therefore, let everyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. God demands that Christians be content because God himself is the one who orchestrates the Christian's circumstance. Now, this is especially important for church because we have such a consumer mentality, uh, uh, especially in America. We walk in those doors, we think, okay, what's this church going to do for me? You know, let's test the quality of that coffee. You know, let's uh, take a look at those classrooms. Let's look at this nursery. And again, some of that's to be expected. We want to have a nice place. But it's we've become McChurch and everybody wants fast food. And what we want to do is feed people on the food from God. And it's not always fast. and It's not always convenient. It's always not about you. It's about him. But what, we, what you find is if you're focused towards God's glory, you can put up with a lot of the things that you wish you had, maybe, but you don't have. That, uh, that you may be blame, blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Uh, now, again, this doesn't mean you're perfect. None of us are perfect, but it means that you're not characterized by a particular sin. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, uh, Paul's generation, they, were, they, they worshipped a plethora of gods. They burned incense to the Caesars. Uh, Paul himself was, uh, was abused and thrown in jail because he preached the truth in Philippi. You know, that's the kind of culture we live in. But we're to be different from the culture. This, it takes no effort to grumble and complain. It, it just takes no effort. Everybody does that. Why don't we be a little bit different? Let people see the difference in us. Why? Because we are to appear as lights in the world. That is a remarkable text. Do you always feel like you're a light in the darkness? <laughs> That's kind of a tall order, isn't it? Because it sure does seem dark out there. But you are to be a light in the world. Stars can only be seen at night. And frankly, the darker it is, the more the the star shines. Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God. The Father who is in heaven. That's our calling, folks. That's our calling. As manners use the stars to navigate towards the port, non-believers will use you to find their way towards heaven. Think about your own conversion. If some of you got converted later on in life, or even if you got converted as a child, why did you do that? Because you saw something in Christians you wanted. There was something different about them. That's the way we are to be. And one of the most precious promises in all of Scripture comes at the end of Daniel. That you, as Christians, as shining lights to the world, will have a special place in Daniel chapter 12. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Well, if we could see ourselves or each other in, their, in our glorified state, uh, we would be tempted to worship each other. Because that's how much we're going to shine. Then we see closing here with a, set, a special libation. I know y'all know I love alliteration. 
And sometimes you probably think it's a stretch. And when you saw special libation, you thought, well, there's a stretch just for the alliteration. But you would be wrong (laughs) because it is a special libation. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. So we are to hold fast the word of life. We are people of a creed so that in the day of Christ, we can stand before him in, in a holy confidence. This is he's talking about the return of the Lord. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this, everyone to, much, uh, everyone to whom much has been given to him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrust much, they will demand much. There is an accountability. Now, Christians aren't judged before the great white throne. Our sins have already been nailed to the cross, but we are judged based upon how we spent this life in regards to rewards that we receive in heaven. I don't know exactly how all that works. Ask Macaria. She just came, got out. She's been in seminary for three weeks. Maybe she knows, but uh, I'm not sure how all that works, but it does. It's there, okay? There, there is a, a, a special use of your life that you should be devoted to. And we don't want to be like Paul don't want to be. Don't want to run in vain or labor in vain. So Paul is looking at the Philippians and he's seeing he's seeing that church thrive. And he said it was worth it. All this jail, all of the jail that I had in Philippi, all of the pain and the suffering that I've gone through. I have borne fruit in Philippi. It's been uh, worth it. And he says here, even if I be poured out in a drink offering, the sacrifice offering of your faith. It's interesting. In pagan and in Jewish practices, you would have an offering. You would take an ox, you would take a a sheep, and you would have it on the altar. And then to, to, in a sense, add a special touch to that offering, you would take wine and you would pour it on there. And then the the wine, of course, would boil, and then while it vaporized, it would have a special uh, fragrance, aroma. The thought was that, that that aroma is pleasing to God. And what Paul is saying here is that you Philippian churches have offered an amazing sacrifice to God. I'm just a little bit of wine that goes on and adds to the aroma. I mean, we're talking about a humble apostle, right? But that's a good illustration for us. Our life is a sacrifice offering to God. And as that aroma rises up towards heaven, he is pleased to see it. What a wonder that is. Isn't it amazing that our lives, and we're just standard run-of-the-mill Andersonites, right? But our lives can matter for all eternity. Everything we do matters. Everything we do it can be a sacrifice offering to God. And he closes here, Likewise, also, you should be glad and rejoice with me. You notice this is kind of a command to rejoice. It's not just an emotion. The, the, the default for the Christian ought to be to walk in joy. And if we're doing these things, that's going to be a whole lot easier. So, you know, sometimes you go to these scriptures and you come to Sunday and you think, well, yeah, that theoretically that is all wonderful. But the world that's outside that front door is really awful. It's really awful, especially for you young people. I mean, y'all are raised on the Hunger Games, right? Every movie y'all have is dystopian. They've gone and taken all the old Disney movies and turned them into dystopian. You know, it's just it, everything is kind of down, right? You, know, and you get so anxious and you get so discouraged and all that. Folks, in a sense, it doesn't matter because our God reigns and he loves you. He loves you. Malcolm Mugridge actually was a philosopher, got saved at age 66, which gives hope for some of us, right? 
And, this, and, and in 1969, which was kind of the year where America really started to turn, 68, 69, Woodstock, Vietnam War, that kind of thing. And I love what Mugridge says, that, 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 because when you're in Christ, in a sense, what goes on, the chaos around you does not have to affect you. Mugridge says this, Let us then as Christians rejoice that we see around us on every hand the decay of the institutions, the instruments of power, the imitations of empires failing to, falling to pieces, the money of, in total disarray, dictators and parliamentarians alike nonplussed by the confusion conflicts which surround them. For it is precisely when every earthly hope has been explored and found wanting, when every possibility of help from earthly sources has been sought and not forthcoming, when every recourse of this world offers, moral as well as material, has been explored with no effect, when the sh in the shivering cold, the last twig has been thrown on the fire in the gathering darkness, every glimmer of light has finally figured out, it is then that Christ's hand reaches out sure and firm. Then Christ's words bring inexpressible comfort. Then his light shines brightest and abolishing the darkness forever. If we're doing our job as being lights to the world, then there's no darkness that can overcome that because it's God who's worked in you and for his good pleasure. Father, we do turn to you in hope and pray, Lord God, that you would help us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel by having a consuming interest in joyfully pleasing you. And I pray, God, that you would help us in this church in general to bear fruit in that regard this week. In Christ's name, amen.